You're listening to Little Green Cheese, episode 33. Well, hi there, everyone. I'm Gavin Weber, and this is where you can learn about cheese making at home. Well, today's guest on the Little Green Cheese is Amy Weber. Now, Amy is my daughter of some 25 years. Oh, God. <laughs> how are you, love? Good, how are you? Great. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is Amy's first cheese making experience. What was it like? It wasn't that great. Was it? Because you stuffed it. <laughs> Why would I purposely make everybody in the class fail? Well, we were supposed to be making mozzarella, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And we ended up making um, cottage cheese instead. Cottage cheese? Ricotta? Ricotta. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So to, besides the obviously failed attempt at making mozzarella... Which, um, dear listeners and my cur nerds out there, was my very first cheese-making workshop. They were all my experiments. So not only I had been teaching before, I had no issues getting up in front of a class, and I'd been making 30-minute mozzarella, no problems in my own kitchen, perfectly fine. But when it came to teaching a class, something went wrong. And we'll talk about what went wrong afterwards because I figured it out pretty quick. Yeah, Amy, step me through the class and all that sort of stuff. From what I remember, because it was quite some time ago, if I remember correctly. Yep. Um, so we all rocked up and Dad had already set up all these little utensils and whatnot. And then he went step by step through with all of us what we had to do. Um, he made it very clear what was right and what was wrong very quickly. And he paid individual attention to everyone in the class and made sure that they knew what they were doing and he'd stop after every step to make sure that everybody had done what they needed to do. So that was all very well and good. Excellent. That was it, wasn't it? Yeah, that was it. Right. So what happened during that class, out of the eight people that attended, only one managed to make mozzarella. Did you stuff up? Is that what you're asking? No. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The problem was... Because I, for the very first time, had started to use lipase as the as one of the ingredients to enhance the flavour the next day, I failed to um, take that into consideration that you actually need another quarter of a teaspoon of rennet. So I was using a quarter of a tablet because I was using the rennet tablets at the time. I still do do use rennet tablets for the class. And I read somewhere that when you're making 30-minute mozzarella, I made my own recipe up, tried it three times in the kitchen before, but I'd never used lipase. So it wasn't until <laughs> the class and I thought, oh, well, add a, add a bit more lipase and, well, add some and it didn't work. It was a dismal failure. So I can't remember where I found out the uh, the uh, the correction, the error in my ways, but uh, because I was using lipase, I had to add in an extra quarter of a tablet. So that's a, whole, a half a tablet of rennet, if you're using rennet tablets, or half a teaspoon 
which is about 1.25 millilitres of, of rennet, liquid rennet. And then what happened? Because I, what I did, I apologised everybody, to everybody in the class and I said, you can come back again because it was a really cheap one. I only charged, um, was it $15 a head or something like so, that? Yeah. yeah, $15 a head, covering my costs. That's all it was. So I invited all of the people that came along to a, uh, a second class and only two people took it up. One of them was Amy and the other one was her friend. Who was your friend at the time? Liz. Liz. Did I come back for another one? Yes, you did. You came back for one. I've got photos of you and Liz in the kitchen. I feel like that was the first one that we stuffed. No, that was the second one. Okay. And it worked. So um, got them back here. We just simply did it instead of the whole workshop set up. Um, we got them to uh, to heat their milk up on the stove, and they added half a teaspoon of uh, of rennet, and they used lipase as well, quarter of a teaspoon of lipase, and bingo, boingo, guess what happened? It worked. It did work. They managed to stretch. You remember now, do you? I think so, maybe. Yeah, you were stretching. It was a long time ago. You were stre- stretching your mozzarella and going, yeah. Dad, this is fun, and and, and I ate it. And I you, remember eating it. Yes, you ate it with crackers and... I think a bit of basil from the garden, a bit of yeah. tomato from the garden. It was, um, I think it was in January, something was quite, pretty warm. It was a very long time ago. Yeah. But what did you think of your first cheese that you made? Can you remember? I thought it was pretty cool that I could make cheese. Yeah. Have now you... being lactose intolerant, not so much fun, but yes. <laughs> Have you made it since? No. That's disappointing. Yeah, well, I haven't bought like all the materials and all the kits and all that sort of stuff. You don't so. have to. You can come here and make it. Yeah, but... I got all the good gear. There's no point in me making it now. I can't eat it. All right. Well, I'm sure I'm going to have to discover some, was it vegan cheese? Yeah. So I think you can make cheese with cashews. I haven't invest- investigated that very much. It's not obviously traditional dairy cheese, but uh, we'll see what we can do because I'm sure there's some people out there, some listeners out there that may indeed be lactose intolerant and they are pining for cheese or some form of cheese again. So... So that's what I'll do. I'll investigate that and we'll see how we go from there. Can't you make soy cheese as well, though? You can. It's called tofu. Yeah, but it's not tofu, though. Yeah, but I don't know. I think you can, because fermented cheese is called, a fermented tofu is called tempeh. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit ordinary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Some people like it. I, I just don't fancy the taste of it. So. Yeah, I've been eating um, lactose free cheese at the moment and it is very, like, it doesn't melt properly. So what is it like? Cashews? Made I, from cashews, I or I have to have a look at my packet and get back to you. But mm. uh, yeah, it's it's not that great. So it doesn't taste che- cheesy. Pretend cheese. Yeah, yeah. Just like how pretend you know lactose free milk, they do their best. God mm. bless their cotton socks, but it just tastes like watered down milk with lots of sugar in it. Yeah, because they would add, add uh, sucrose and and take out the lactose. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a bit like uh, soya milk, where it's made from. Uh, sunflower oil is uh, added to the soya, the soybeans as well, to add body and uh, and sugar in the form of sucrose. So yeah, it doesn't taste very nice. Well, some people think it tends tastes fantastic. <laughs> Certainly, you can't make a soy latte without it being very bitter. Oh no, I like soy lattes. Why is that? Take it back. I, I like them. Yeah, but I remember that when I first started drinking um, soy milk, and I've given that up now. Now that I've gone full dairy again. That um. When the, when the barista made the coffee, and I were going a bit off track for the cheesemakers out there, <laughs> but when the barista made the coffee, ultimately it had a bitter taste, and it wasn't the coffee, 
It was something to do with when they heated up the soy milk. I feel like it was just, it's more of a nutty sort of a taste. Yeah, it is. It's not so much bitter, but yeah. Because I find coffee to be quite bitter anyway, but yes, I find it just to be a bit more nutty tasting. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. (laughs) Thank you very much, Amy, for your, um, your short but brief and informative commentary about our cheesemaking workshop. And since that cheesemaking workshop, I've gone on to teach about 30 other courses. Well, it's the same course, mozzarella and ricotta, to uh, many, many students. And they've all turned out and all their cheeses have turned out fine and uh, they've enjoyed the day. So that's fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show, Amy. No worries. All right. See you later. Bye. Well, we've got no news articles today, but I've got a couple of voicemails and then quite a few email questions. So let's get stuck into that. So both listener questions, uh, the voicemail variety, are both from Jean-Michel in Nice in France. Take it away, Jean-Michel. Hello, Gavin. Uh, This is your French speaking. I have a question. Um, On most of your recipes, when when you ask to uh, wax the cheeses, you say that even if it's waxed, you have to we have to uh, store uh, the cheese in a 85% humidity atmosphere during uh, the aging period. And uh, in the drunken cow recipe, you say, or you write instead of saying, uh, that uh, if uh, one can't uh, get a 85% atmosphere. Um, and then uh, uh, we can instead wax it. So my question is, uh, is it possible to wax the cheese rather than put it in the plastic box um, to obtain a 85% atmosphere? The point is that uh, uh, I'm run- running out of space in my small uh, cheese, ca- cheese cave and uh, it would be great if I could wax the, the cheeses uh, inst- instead of put it in, in put it in a, a box. Uh, given that uh, my cheeses are rather big. Okay, uh, thank you for your reply. Bye bye. I've got other questions in another message. Bye bye. Well, thanks for your question, John Michelle. There are two schools of thought, really. Um, the one I subscribe to, and sometimes I flip and flop a little bit between the two, that uh, when you do wax your cheese, you still do have to maintain a fair bit of humidity. So if you've got a basement or something like that, uh, I'm not sure of your circumstances there in Nice, um, I would keep it in a moist area. I wouldn't I, I wouldn't put it in a dry area when it's waxed. You know, the temperature still has to main, be maintained for the cheese, the cultures within the cheese to develop properly uh, to get the right flavour that you're after. So you still need to keep it at the same temperature. You, look, you can wax it. You can even vacuum pack it if you've got one of those devices around as well. Uh, certainly uh, with vacuum packing, you do not need to maintain the humidity too much. It's not a very porous material. Um, being plastic, uh, and it maintains a lot of the moisture within the cheese. So have a go. I have had an experience where the cheese fridge at one stage was about 60% humidity, and I found that two of the cheeses that I had waxed in the cheese fridge started to dry out, so I had to then lift the um, the humidity. The reason I found out 
is that the the cheese inside started to shrink because it was drying out. So so just be careful. When you do wax it, probably don't need as high humidity, but don't put it in a dry place. That's my advice to you, and I hope it helps. Well, the next question is from Jean-Michel from Nice. So uh, here's uh, Jean-Michel's next question. Um, Gavin, I've got another question about the drunken cow, cow uh, cheese. In your recipe, you say that uh, we must take off uh, one third of the whey. Uh, how can I know uh, which quantity corresponds to one third of the whey exactly? Do you have a method? Because uh, uh, I have no idea. What I did is to is was to remove. Uh, a couple of cups, trying to, uh, to, to using the cups itself, uh, but uh, it was uh, not very accurate. So thank you for your advice and thank you for everything. Bye-bye. See you. Well, thanks again for your question, Jean-Michel. Uh, the answer to that one's pretty simple, and, and I should have been a little bit more clearer in the recipe is that you take it down to the level of the curds. So when you first start to see the curds, um, you'll see that they sink to the bottom anyway. Um, but within those curds, they're obviously held in place by all the whey as well. So take the whey down to the level of the curds, and roughly you've got about one-third. So you've taken away one-third of the whey. The reason we do that in this recipe is we're trying to lower the overall acidity of the cheese because the whey has a lot of acid in it. And um, what we want to do is we want to remove a fair bit of that so we have a more mellow cheese. We don't have a, a high, sharp sort of cheese. So that's why we're taking away around about one-third of the whey. Um, take it down to the level of the curds and you should be fine. And thanks very much for your question, mate. Really appreciate it. Well, we've got the email questions now. The first one's from Neil, and Neil says, Hi, Gavin, I'm writing from London, UK. I recently started making cheese at home and have been listening to your podcasts, which are very helpful and full of valuable insight. So far, I've made ricotta, mozzarella, and your halloumi recipe. In fact, I've made halloumi three times, once with cow's milk, once with raw goat's milk, and one with 80 to 20 goat to cow milk mixture. I also brined some of the goat's cheese halloumi batches in beetroot juice and salt, which worked well and added an earthy flavour as well as an interesting appearance. My cheese cave, fridge with external thermostat, should be up and running in the next couple of weeks, and I'm very excited about that. I intend to try and make a Bannon-style cheese uh, which is a goat's cheese matured for a couple of months in chestnut leaf soaked in brandy. As soon as the cheese cave is up and running, and wonder, have you ever made any cheese of this style before? Best wishes, Neil. Well, Neil, I can't say I have. However, I do know a home cheese maker that has. If you go and visit Ian Truer over at much ado about cheese that's his cheese blog and i'll put that in the in the show notes you can see he's done quite a few of those sorts of soft cheeses uh, not only wrapped in leaves but wrapped in bark as well 
Um, so I think you'll get some valuable insight and some tips over there if you pop over to Ian's cheese making blog. Thanks for your question, Neil. Now the next question is from Lauren. Lauren says, "Hi, I'm at the point." of wrapping my first camembert attempt, and so far so good. Unfortunately, I didn't buy cheese paper ahead of time, and I think it really needs to be wrapped now. Do you think I can get away with wrapping in baking paper and perhaps a layer of normal foil over that? Lauren. Well, Lauren, I do think that that is a possibility, and uh, I have tried that before. I have wrapped uh, camembert and indeed Stilton, another mould-ripened cheese, with baking paper and it does actually help it. Um, it stops and slows down the uh, mould activity and uh, especially if you wrap an extra layer of foil over the top of the baking paper, uh, that'll slow it down and uh, it'll mature correctly. So go ahead, try that and uh, I dare say it will work because I've tried it myself before. Thanks very much for your question. The next one is from... Crystal, and uh, Crystal says, Hi Gavin, I'm a recent listener to your podcast and really enjoying them, so thanks. I'm also a recently initiated curd nerd. Yesterday I made my first semi-soft cheese, Havati, and it is looking amazing. I would like to know if you can suggest some fast maturing cheeses that I can make to be ready for a gathering at the start of November. I would like to make a few different cheeses for a platter to share. Thanks a lot, Crystal Werribee. Uh, Werribee's just down the road from me. That's fantastic. Well, Crystal, um, I would highly recommend the following cheeses that should mature in time. Give Cofili a go. 30-minute uh, mozzarella. Just make that the day before. Uh, camembert. That should be nice and easy and should mature within the four weeks. And feta. Uh, feta's nice and easy. Nice salty cheese, but I think I've put in a few recipes lately of a, a low-salt variety. I think uh, it was John that provided that information. So uh, so you can find all those recipes on the site or, if you like, um, within the ebook. Keep Calm and Make Cheese. Uh, they should all be very good crowd pleasers, and you should impress everybody, I reckon. So thanks very much. The next question was more of an observation than a question. Uh, this is from my friend David Dawson over in Canada. He loves being on the podcast. <laughs> it says, hi, Gavin. I've just listening, been listening to your podcast. Interesting as usual. And as we have come to expect, imagine... Oh, sorry. I heard my name mentioned again too. One thing I'd like to say about the Parmesan that the woman and her five-year-old daughter were having trouble with mould. I've never made parmesan, so I wouldn't know about what humidity was necessary, but the brush-on liquid wax includes a mild fungicide that seriously helps to prevent mould developing under the wax or within backpack, no doubt. Then, of course, one has to either wax or backpack after brushing on the liquid wax. The other thing that seemed a little strange is that you recommended that the humidity be kept high after waxing or backpacking. Surely once it's waxed, it is totally isolated from the outside air. Uh, you could put it underwater in the desert and it wouldn't make any difference or am I missing something? Great stuff. Regards, David. Well, thanks, David. Um, I kind of answered the uh, question around waxing. I think that wax is, is quite porous still uh, and it does need a level hum of humidity um, to stop the cheese from drying out. That's just from experience. 
Um, others may have different experiences, but we have a quite a dry uh, climate here, and uh, that's what I find happens to uh, my cheeses. If I've waxed them and I don't have them at a relatively high humidity, which is around about over over 70%. Anyway, but thanks very much for your advice. Yeah, that liquid brush on wax, it's a it's kind of like a, a glue, but it's not really. It's a it's a clear white uh, wax that you can brush under the cheese with a with a paintbrush or a pastry brush, and then you can use the normal uh, cheese making wax over the top of that. And as David has mentioned, it does inhibit uh, the mold, which is fantastic. Thanks, David, for your observation and uh, and your question. So the next question is from Jenny. Now, Jenny is from the UK. And I'll just read this out. There's uh, there's eight questions, but I'm not going to answer them all. <laughs> It'll take an entire new episode of the Little Green Cheese podcast to answer all these questions. But anyway, what I'll do, I'll select one. But I'll read the preamble. Hi, Gavin. I've been inspired by your YouTube videos and have purchased your book, but I'm now looking to equip myself with the right gear, but not get stuff I do not need. I cannot buy your kit as I'm in the UK, so I've been trying to source items similar to your kit, slant suggestions in the book. But I have a few queries, especially on moulds. I love the fact that you use normal household stuff. Cheese kits sold here in the UK don't look like they give you practical gear e.g. small thermometers and 13 kilo presses, etc. All right, now I'm going to pick one of these questions, Jenny, and uh, what I'll do, I'll reply back to the rest of them in an email. But the most, one of the most interesting ones that I found here is that what advantages... Oh, hang on, I'll start again. Uh, what are the advantages of moulds with bases over hollow tubes that hold uh, other than holding the contents better? Other bases less helpful when you need to turn the cheese to press the other end. Well, Jenny, I think you're talking about things like camembert hoops. Um, and yeah, they do need to be open-ended. Even though I do have a few camembert hoops that are not open-ended, main reason for that is, yeah, you do flip the cheese quite often. So when you're making um, soft, mould-ripened cheeses like camembert and brie, uh, and sometimes blue cheese as well, um, you need to flip them end to end so they form the the right shape. Now, you'll find that um, other cheese moulds uh, have a closed end, so they've only got one open end, and that's because they do press better because you have to have a solid base at the bottom connected to the rest of the mould. When you apply pressure at the top, you don't want your cheese shooting out the bottom of the mould, so that's the reason why they have bases on the bottom. Uh, there's one other interesting uh, question here, and I'll, I'll read this out. I said oh, I was only do one, but I'll do two. Um, the next, it's about double boilers. I haven't seen these for sale. Have you any sources where you can get them? Yours looks great. I have an eight liter stock pot, so can get started. Must I put a pan underneath this, or can it be direct on the gas hob? I haven't got a pan to fit underneath it, so I better buy a double boiler other than get another pan. But cannot find one. Well, my suggestion there, Jenny, is that I don't use anything very flash. Um, I'd have my eight litre stock pot that I put the milk in. I put a just a smaller pan underneath um, that is about quarter full of water. 
And as I boil that, the steam heats up the one on the top. Just make sure that the one on the bottom, um, if you're going to use that method, is a little bit smaller, slightly smaller than the uh, than the the stock pot on the top. Um, there is another method that I've seen people use, and that is to put your stock pot into the sink, and you fill the sink with hot water um, out of the tap. And as it gets up to the right temperature, as the milk gets up to the right temperature, then you simply just drain the water away. And the milk usually holds its temperature um, around the right uh, the right target temperature. So you can use your sink as a double boiler as well. A lot of cheesemakers find uh, that's an easy method as well. Anyway, as I said, I will uh, answer the rest of the questions in your email. Thanks very much, Jenny, for your questions. And lucky last... This one's from Alan. Um, Alan says, Hi Gavin, I made four rounds of camembert three weeks since wrapping it up on Sunday. Last Thursday night, I opened the first one. Beautiful, lovely white mould all over, cream and tasty inside. Similar to the white one in the photo. He attached a photo and I'll pop that in the show notes. Uh, Last night, I opened the second one. Uh, Of the two lower coloured ones, very firm, clean, very tasty. Uh, he also checked the other two, one white, beautiful, and the other one starting to go a bit brown. All taste fantastic, not as creamy as the first one, but I hadn't let them come to room temperature. His question is, why the the two perfect and the two brownie coloured ones? Uh, the only advice I could give you, Alan, is that uh, it looks like some of the mould's been remo- removed off of the the ones that are starting to go a bit brown. It's not actually brown. It looks like the white mould has had some sort of moisture uh, on it and it's uh, dissolved the mould. That's what I can see from the the photograph you provided there. That's the only suggestion. If they taste nearly the same, obviously when you tried the first one, um, it was a few days earlier than the other ones. So you've got, yeah, so it's about a week in between the tastings by the looks of it. And a week can make all the difference. It really can, especially with camembert. Um, so th- that's the only thing I can think of. Um, I hope that helps. Well, I do have some news. I, I forgot. Um, I have recently updated my cheese making ebook. I have added some more content to it. I've added uh, three, four more recipes, and I've added three more video tutorials. Um, that are available within the book, and I've tidied up some of the uh, some of the narrative up the front uh, just a little bit, and I've also um, made some minor amendments to some of the recipes um, where I may have missed um, adding in calcium chloride, or at least telling people why to add it or why not to add it, depending on the type of milk you're using. And I've also adjusted some of the measurements for. The starter culture. Now, I normally the starter cultures that I use here, uh, they recommend you use a heap smidgen, which is about one eighth of a teaspoon or slightly less than one eighth of a teaspoon. So I've adjusted my recipes um, to to do that, and I use uh, Psacco uh, cultures. Now, just make sure that if you're using other cultures that you've sourced from other places, that you just follow their instructions. I'll say how much how many grams you've got there, and uh, and how many litres of milk. Um, and uh, usually there's some guidance on how much culture you need to put in per litre or per you know, eight litres. 
So, uh, so use that advice uh, from the manufacturer of the starter cultures that you use. But anyway, great news. Um, as I said, it's available on uh, littlegreencheese.com. Um, you'll find that the ebook page is there. Uh, it's also available on Amazon, Apple iBooks. Uh, it's also available on uh, Barnes & Noble Nook, if you've got one of those devices as well. So uh, you can read it just about anywhere. Also on the on the website, there is a PDF-only version that you can print out. And soon, um, for Australian residents only uh, at the moment, due to postage costs, I'll be starting to print out uh, some of the PDF ones and bind them myself. Um, so uh, the price will be a little bit more, um, but they'll be available as well. Um, and I will be expanding my range of uh, cheese making kits. I've managed to source a very reliable supplier, and even though I don't make them up myself, um, I will be reselling them, um, and they will be available uh, not on the littlegreencheese.com, but I've got another website called Little Green Workshops. Um, I'm developing the store software there and putting the products as we speak uh, up online. And we're hoping the grand launch. Uh, that's a we, as in Kim and I, my wife. We're hoping to launch Little Green Workshops um, supplies and um, homemade gifts. Uh, that's the sort of thing we're going to sell there. And uh, we're hoping about mid-October that'll all be ready. But there are some cheese-making kits and cheese-making presses on the littlegreencheese.com website. Um, and you can see there's some tabs at the top to go and have a look at those. Unfortunately, due to them containing the uh, starter cultures, uh, and other perishable items I can only ship within Australia. So I apologise to all my international listeners. Yeah, um, second edition cheesemaking book is now available, so go for it. If you haven't already got a copy, you'll get a few um, bonus recipes. Well, that's all the questions I've got this show and all the content that I've got for you guys. Um, I hope it's been enjoyable. You've uh, learned a little bit about cheesemaking at home. And uh, it's helped you on your way to become a curd nerd. For upcoming workshop dates uh, and recipes, you can find those all over at littlegreencheese.com. You can also find my ebook, Keep Calm and Make Cheese A Beginner's Guide to Cheese Making at Home. That's available on all good ebook retailers and it's available in all ebook formats. You can also find my cheese making video tutorials uh, within the ebook or on my YouTube channel. Uh, you can go to the link. Uh, there's a link there on the uh, littlegreencheese.com. Thanks for listening, Curd Nerds, and stay tuned for the next exciting episode of Little Green Cheese Podcast. During this podcast, you heard royalty free music by Kevin McLeod. I played Malt Shop Bop and call to the dairy cows.